ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hi, Damien Carrick here. Later on The Law Report, human rights legislation. A step forward in Victoria and a hard reverse in Queensland. I should warn, our first conversation involves discussion of voluntary assisted dying. For the first time in Australia, a patient who chose to end their life with medical help has donated their organs. Former nurse Marlene Bevan, who suffered from an aggressive form of motor neurone disease, died earlier this year at the age of 66. Her decision to donate saved four lives. So how did the strict legal and regulatory frameworks around organ donation and those around voluntary assisted dying interact in this case? I'm joined by Dr Rohit De Costa. He's Medical Director of Donate Life Victoria, the organisation which coordinates organ donation across the state. And also by Dr James Hurley, one of the voluntary assisted dying consultant practitioners who assisted Marlene Bevan. Dr Hurley, tell me about Marlene Bevan. Marlene had motor neurone disease, as you described. She lost the use of her arms and legs and it was increasingly a threat to her life with her risk to swallowing and aspiration. This had occurred over a period of a few months and she made the decision that she wanted to donate as part of her dying. I understand also she had witnessed her husband Robert die a painful death from pancreatic cancer some eight years earlier. So she was she's very mindful of, of what uh, a painful death could be. Oh, yes. She was a former nurse of, of many years. So briefly, what steps do you need to take to ensure that someone is suitable for voluntary assisted dying under Victorian legislation? The Victorian legislation being the first in the country is very secure. There are multiple steps. The person has to express freely and voluntarily and without coercion. They have to uh, state to the initial medical practitioner what they wish, and that has to be in their own words and has to be uh, not suggested. And once they've um, stated what they want, they are then seen by a consulting practitioner for the first consultation, and their eligibility based on citizenship and residency criteria is reviewed. And if they meet those, they then go on to consulting practitioner and possibly also a third person, as in the case of Marlene, to document that they have a neurological condition that will end their life within six to 12 months. And with those reports from the consulting medical practitioner and the possibly also the neurologist, they come back to the coordinating practitioner who does a witnessed declaration in front of two witnesses to document that the decision to access is free, freely given, enduring, and um, in the presence of two witnesses signed off. That is approved by the Voluntary Assistance Board, I'm, I should add. So there are many steps here. When did she express a desire to donate her organs? Uh, that would have been... At the time, she saw the consulting practitioner who was a neurologist and she mentioned that she, as part of the dying, she wanted to donate her organs a month or two before she died. Dr. Rahit DaCosta, Medical Director of Donate Life Victoria, I'll bring you in here. Presumably, uh, Donate Life Victoria was able to have conversations with Marlene Bevan about her wishes to donate and that would be a very unique situation. Yeah, indeed it is. There has been experience in other countries, particularly Canada, 
where they've had the equivalent sort of legislation, which is, uh, and they call it made uh, medical assistance of dying. And, you know, in fact, uh, in Canada, 5% or a little bit more of organ donors are donors via the MAID pathway. So they've uh, chosen MAID and then can donate. But this hasn't happened in, in Australia before. And it took, it took Marlene's raising off it for us to consider it. Um, and importantly, we, we could only consider it after that decision had been made that she wanted to access VAD and it had been approved. Can you tell me about what the focus of, of the conversations were between Donate Victoria and Marlene Bevan? So we have a number of very experienced and caring nurses who uh, meet with families usually when uh, their loved one is dying in ICU typically um, about the organ donation process, how it can help others, tests that might need to be done during the dying process. In this case, it was unique in that one of our specialist nurses was actually speaking with the potential donor, so with Marlene herself, about how she potentially could help others, what the organ donation procedure would involve, um, who might be helped as in uh, you know, people with liver disease or lung disease, and any tests that she might have to do in the process leading up to her death and the organ donation procedure. Now, normally I understand uh, voluntary assisted dying people or patients choose to die at home, but hoping to donate her organs, Marlene chose to die in hospital. Yeah, a really amazing thing that she did. The reason for this is that when someone dies, there's a limited period where the organs are medically viable for transplantation. So that's why organ donation typically happens in intensive care units where people are on life support machines and therapies which a decision has been made that they are going to be withdrawn and the person dies very soon after these therapies are withdrawn. If someone dies at home, it's not impossible, but it does significantly increase the time between death and the organ donation procedure and potentially makes the organs not suitable for transplantation. So in order to ensure that she could donate her organs, she chose to die in an ICU hospital bed just 10 metres away from an operating theatre. I believe that in the last half hour of her life, she was given some news that made her smile. Yes, I think there was a conversation that she had uh, in the lead up to her death with a donation nurse where I think Marlene uh, recognised that because she... I was donating two kidneys that two people would, rather than, you know, one person from the kidneys, it would be two people that would get life-saving kidney transplants. And that conversation happened just just minutes before she died. So she was told, I think, at that point that uh, her donation would likely save four lives. Yeah, and I think Um, she was under the impression it would be three because, and quite reasonably, she thought she'd be donating lungs, liver and kidneys. So four lives, not three. So this, for the first time, I suppose, uh, Donate Victoria was able to tell a donor exactly how their organs were likely to be used. Yeah, it is It is amazing and in some ways mind-blowing. And I'm told 
that when she was finally aware that there was four, not three, a smile came to her face, which is just, you know, amazing. Okay, we have two very strict legal and regulatory frameworks, one for organ donation, the other for voluntary assisted dying. When they intersect, what do we have to be very clear about? I think the most important thing is that there's clear separation between the decisions and we need to make sure that there is absolutely no coercion. I know that as part of the VAD process, James has very clearly articulated that the person's making a free decision and that the decision to donate organs should not influence that decision in any way. And that's really important um, that donate life or our nurses or doctors are only involved after the VAD process has been approved. So it not to influence that process, not for it to be another motivation to embarking on, on a voluntary assisted dying course. Exactly. James Hurley? Yes, uh, definitely a clear separation of roles. There's a discussion that happens with VAD and there's a separate discussion that happens with organ donation and um, it's important that uh, there's, you know, separation. Dr James Hurley and Dr Rahid Da Costa, thank you both for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you so much. No worries. No worries. Damien Carrick with you. This is The Law Report. You can follow us on the ABC Listen app. Around Australia, three jurisdictions have human rights legislation, the ACT, Victoria and Queensland. Now, these charters require governments at all levels to make decisions which protect and promote the human rights set out in the legislation. Later, we'll talk about two big steps backward for Queensland's Human Rights Act. But first to an unexpected step forward for Victoria's Charter of Rights and Responsibilities. In a legal first, Victorian developers have scaled back a proposed apartment block because the human rights of the neighbours would have been detrimentally impacted by the loss of sunlight and privacy. The case involves Eliza Hill and Philippe Yarden and their 19-year-old son Jay, who all live together in a house in Brunswick, in Melbourne's inner north. I'm joined by Eliza Hill. Eliza Hill, tell me about your son, Jay. Jay is pretty energetic. He's got a nice giggle. He loves music and watching his iPad. He's also got profound um, autism, autism spectrum disorder. So Jay is minimally verbal. He has intellectual disability. He has a lot of sensory issues and importantly has complex behaviours. And this means that he can have irritable outbursts and uh, spontaneous sort of running around, as well as with the sensory issues where he'll just toss off his clothes quite frequently. And there's a lot of other things as well, just ability to um, look after his hygiene, to prepare food. This is just not possible. So he needs 24-hour care. And he needs to be in a house where he's comfortable and have access to a garden, which presumably is pretty crucial if it's difficult to go out into the world without being accompanied. 
Well, that's right, yes. Jay, in order to go into the community, so to do things like go and use the local pool or go to a shop or, you know, go outside, go for a walk in the park, we need two adult support workers to accompany him to do that. And so, as you can imagine, that's um, quite tricky uh, logistically to organise, but it's really important for that reason that he has a place that he can go outside, feel, you know, different sensory experiences under his feet in the garden and be relaxed so and and then a place for the family as well to be relaxed without worrying about him rushing off or being in the way of traffic and things like that so your home is extremely important to you and your partner and your son developers wanted to build a seven-story apartment block what impact would this have had on jay and the home that you've you've built so carefully We've been there for 16 years and right from the start when we renovated, we have tailored the home to Jay's needs as well. So that sort of puts into perspective that it is really necessary and also with autism, uh, the aversion to change makes it very difficult for a family like ours to just get up and leave. That's just not really a possibility. The other thing is the development is going ahead, but what was initially proposed, which we just found it was unreasonable for us given our situation, was that the design would have meant that we lost nearly all of our sunlight into that backyard. So usually there's a requirement, I think, with the residential code that you have around about five hours of sunlight. But this would have brought us down to two hours or less at times of the year. Presumably there are overlooking issues as well, which would accompany a seven-storey development? Well, I think, yeah, it's a little bit different to just overlooking. I would say that the people in the apartments would probably not want to be seeing someone running around with these uh, complex behaviours. And, you know, I mentioned before that the the clothes get thrown off quite frequently and he's unable to modify his behaviour should someone else be overlooking. So there was this proposal to build a seven-storey apartment block. The council refused planning permission, saying the development infringed on the human rights of the family. That was the council's decision. The developers appealed this And at a preliminary hearing, the developers asked that the Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal member, that's a kind of planning tribunal in Victoria, they asked this member, Susan Whitney, to strike out these human rights arguments because they were, quote, misconceived. Now, the decision maker rejected this argument. And after that, the developers decided to sit down with you and negotiate with you and what alterations to the the original seven-storey proposal did they agree to? So what I can say is that there are significant changes and I really thank the architect and the developer team for this, where the building is still being built but some changes in the design now allow sunlight to come in and we regain sunlight in some of the backyard that we would have otherwise lost And they've also made those overlooking um, adjustments, as I mentioned. Really great for you. And this is potentially a precedent, a watershed moment, because it's the first time I understand that human rights, as embodied in the Victorian Charter of Rights and Responsibilities, has been invoked in a planning dispute. I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding is there is a reference to the Human Rights Charter in every planning scheme that goes through and is approved. But I'm just going to take a phrase that I heard from someone else, that it's been sort of looked at as tick and flick. 
So can I just in conclusion ask, I mean, is it still going to be seven storeys high, this development? So the building is still going ahead. It's still seven storeys. It is modified, but council are happy they get the increased um, density. We are much happier. We get back some of the sunlight would have, would have lost and the developers go ahead. And I think there's a slight reduction in height in in some parts of the block. There are changes to the windows, so they're not overlooking, and maybe there are privacy screens as well. So all, all to to kind of you maintain that the dignity and the rights of your son Jay. That's right. Yes, Elisa Hill. Thank you. Thank you very much for speaking to the law report, and, and best wishes to your family. Thanks very much, Damien. Melbourne barrister Kylie Evans acted pro bono for Eliza Hill and her family. I asked her to tell me more about the Victorian Charter of Rights and Responsibilities. The Charter is a piece of legislation enacted by the Victorian Parliament in 2006, so it's been around now for quite a long time, about 17 years. It promotes and protects rights for Victorians, including a range of civil and political rights that are protected in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. It also establishes obligations on the three arms of government, the courts, parliament and the executive government, to do various things to take into account rights when making decisions. That's an obligation on the executive, and that includes local councils, also to act compatibly with these rights. And in this case, the local government was interested in protecting the right to privacy and the right to family as set out in this charter. So the developer appeals the uh, planning uh, knockback and at, I think, what's known as a preliminary conference, once these human rights arguments struck out because they are misconceived... The VCAT member says, no, I'm not dismissing these arguments. If I end up hearing the case, I will consider these charter arguments. So that's what's really interesting here. That's what's new. Correct. That's significant. And also, the rights that we said were relevant, we contended, included disability rights, so quality rights protected by the charter. This case is the first time in which those rights have been raised in a planning case before VCAT. Mm. So, Carly Evans, moving forward, how might this dispute be used in future disputes or future planning issues? I think there's two significant aspects that will be useful for the future for people to consider. The first is that it seems that it would be open to objectors to make submissions to a council in their objection to a planning permit raising human rights issues. That's really clear from this case. The second issue is that the the VCAT, the tribunal, when presented with a ground of objection that raises human rights, will in future cases need to consider how uh, it should determine that ground. In other words, this decision uh, establishes that it's not misconceived to raise human rights issues in the VCAT. Now, how has the Charter been used more generally in the courts and the tribunals? So, as I indicated, we've had the Charter now for about 17 years and there are a range of decisions, both in the Supreme Court of Victoria and also the VCAT about the Charter. In a range of contexts, the Charter has been used. So, for example, there's a decision that's a very significant decision on the Charter involving the transfer of young people to Barwon Prison 
This is which is an adult prison in Victoria. Adult prison in Victoria. So what happened here, Damien, was that a part of the prison was gazetted to make it a youth detention facility. But in fact, the conditions of detention really were not suitable for children. And in a string of cases, the Supreme Court found that it was incompatible with the children's rights to detain them in that setting. And in the, in the uh, certain children number two decision, the court issued an injunction to say to the state, you need to remove these children from that setting. So that's a very important charter case. Kylie Evans, barrister and academic, thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report. Thanks, Damien. The planning dispute in Victoria has been hailed as an extension of human rights legislation into a new area. But in Queensland, the Human Rights Act has gone into a hard reverse, not once but twice. The state government recently passed legislation allowing the detention of children in police watch houses, and it could only do this by explicitly overriding the state's Human Rights Act. University of Queensland professor Tamara Walsh says police watch houses are inappropriate places to detain young people. Police watch houses were never intended to house people for a long period of time. So the reason we have watch houses is because sometimes people need to wait, so they need to wait to be heard by a court or they might need to wait after court to be transferred to a detention centre. So they're there mainly for adults to wait while they are waiting for a court or to be transferred. They were never intended to hold anyone for long periods of time The reason why we're finding children in watch houses for a long period of time is because of the legislative changes that have been made in Queensland to our Youth Justice Act. What it means is that it's harder for children to get bail, so there are more children waiting to be transferred, and there are also just more children waiting in courts and more children in custody generally. So because the numbers of children in detention and in custody have gone up so much, there is nowhere to place these children. So we're finding that children who should have only been in watch houses for less than 24 hours are being held for many days in some instances. And why, in your view and the view of many other people, is it inappropriate to house children in these watch houses? The conditions in watch houses are very harsh. There are no amenities. They're often shared spaces where detained people can see one another. And that means that children are exposed to all manner of behaviours that we wouldn't want children to be exposed to. There's no entertainment. There's often no education, no visits. And honestly, some of these watch houses remind me of dungeons, actually. Some of them are very old and the conditions really are Spartan-like. And I've heard some horrific stories from lawyers about children not having access to clean underwear and particularly girls being subjected to really serious sexual harassment and other sexualised behaviours from other detainees. So they are certainly not places where we want anyone to be, particularly vulnerable children. So the state government passed legislation allowing for the detention of children in police watch houses, and it could only do this by explicitly overriding the state's Human Rights Act. The Queensland government says it has a serious youth crime problem, that some terrible crimes are being committed and the community needs or wants a tough response. What's your response to that assertion? 
When we changed the youth justice laws to make it harder for children to get bail, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So if you restrict children from getting bail, then you have more children in custody, so you have more children who end up in detention. Our concern with that is that there are lots of children in custody in situations where if not for these legal changes, they wouldn't have been there. So we're putting children in custody in situations where before the changes to the legislation that were often done quickly without a lot of thought or review, they wouldn't have been in custody. So the numbers are increasing. The amount of time that children spend in custody is increasing. And actually what we're finding is that a lot of children are in detention centres without being sentenced by a court. In fact, the vast majority of children in detention in Queensland at last count, 86%, and it could be more now, haven't been sentenced by a court. So that many of them will be acquitted and many of them will be released immediately after because they wouldn't have spent that long in custody if not for these laws. So they become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, the difficulty with keeping children in watch houses and the reason why there was a concern regarding possible challenges to the Human Rights Act is because our Human Rights Act specifically says that every child has a right to protection just because they're a child. We also have a, a section in our Human Rights Act that says that accused children must be segregated from detained adults and that they should be treated in a way that's appropriate to their age. We also have a section in our Human Rights Act that says that everyone has a right to humane treatment when they're deprived of their liberty. And I think certainly there's an argument open that keeping children in watch houses under these conditions for lengthy periods of time is a potential breach of those sections of the Act. Okay, so so you're saying that, that those are the provisions of, of the Human Rights Act might, which might be in conflict with this decision to keep kids in watch houses, but but the legislation includes an override of the Human Rights Act. So the government is within its powers to set aside, to override the Human Rights Act, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So the override provision in our Human Rights Act is unlimited in its scope. So it allows the parliament to pass a law that completely immunises the Act. So it prevents judges from scrutinising the Act or a provision of an Act completely but we have a situation in Queensland where we've had two overrides in the last six months, and both of those overrides have been in relation to vulnerable children in detention. And I'm, I'm, I have to say that that is a worrying trend, and it's not it's not what we would have expected. So the first override was around bail for children. Uh, who've been arrested, and the second one was for uh, being able to put them in, in hold them in, in police holding cells or police watch houses. Finally, Tamara Walsh, what does this tell you about the the effectiveness of uh, of human rights acts in in Australia and, I guess, in particular, in Queensland? There's no doubt in my mind that human rights acts improve decision-making, and we've seen that in Queensland. Uh, I run the UQ Caxton Human Rights Case Law Project at the University of Queensland, and we uh, analyse every single case that mentions the Queensland Human Rights Act. And what we've seen is cases where human rights are discussed, where there's a balancing act that's undertaken between the competing interests, the decisions are better. When you ask yourself, 
Are these limits on rights necessary? Are they proportionate to the end we're trying to achieve? These discussions lead to better outcomes, better decision-making. The reasoning is richer. So the risk with these overrides is that the Human Rights Act won't command the same level of respect that it did and that it should. And, and I wouldn't want the Human Rights Act to be considered disposable. It's there to protect everyone. It's there to set a universal standard to guide us in what we do, to guide us in how we think. It represents what we care about and our fundamental values. So to have a government say, well, we're not going to consider rights in these instances or these people only have rights when we say they do, I fear that it's a slippery slope. I mean, human rights are exactly that. They're supposed to be rights that we have by virtue of our humanity. And once we decide that some people deserve rights and others don't, I think we're heading into really dangerous territory. University of Queensland Professor Tamara Walsh, thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you. That's The Law Report for this week. Don't forget you can follow us on the ABC Listen app. That's all we have time for this week. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and to sound engineer Elise Simons. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more Law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.